Chapter Twelve of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Twelve. It should be remembered that the ping is a calling or exclaiming tone, the shang is a questioning tone, the ku is a despairing tone, and the hia ping an assenting tone. The jiaosheng is an abrupt stop. Chinese Grammar It was in the heart of the happy winter that Ostrander, sitting one day by the study fire with Avis after a long walk over the frozen beach, said quietly, as if resuming a broken conversation, "'But, Avis, is this to last for ever?' "'This,' she turned to catch his meaning, dull with happiness, "'it is pleasant enough to last for ever, I think.' she said, throwing herself back in her deep chair. She sat drowned in her furs and partially loosened cape, her cheek had the vivid flush that a winter night paints upon young faces, and the fine excitement which accompanies it hovered in her eyes. "'But our own home would be like this always,' persisted he, with the vague and blessed fatuity of a lover's imagination, which, while it may perceive the trail of the serpent over Adam's Eden, or Tom Smith's, or yours, or mine, hears in its own only the rustle of the leaf upon the tree of life. Avis, who had now lost her brilliant colour, and sat quite dull and still, said, "'I wish a man and woman could be always engaged. What are you laughing at, Philip?' "'Should you really like it to be so, for you and me?' asked Ostrander, with a smile that was grave enough. "'Certainly,' said Avis promptly. "'Of course I should. I am perfectly happy as we are. I think most women would be.' "'But I,' suggested Ostrander, "'am not happy. I am tired of a homeless life. I have lived one so long.' He had never so distinctly urged his own need upon her before. Avis listened attentively. Her precious freedom, wild rebel that it was, petted, perhaps, and overindulged, took on to her mind for the first time faintly the aspect of a selfish delight. To be sure, Philip had no home like herself, no consonance of household repose and love led into his life. She had not thought sufficiently of that. "'I do not wish to press any claim or want of mine unduly,' he went on gently. "'But there is my work. I have my future to make. I don't want it to be one that my wife shall be ashamed of. Situated as I am, I cannot command my best conditions. With his home and his wife a man must develop himself if he ever can. With you, Avis, with you—he paused, much agitated. There are no bounds but those of my own nature that will prevent my life from becoming at least a worthy, if not a noble, deed." Long years after, these words came back to Avis Doble's memory, like the carven stone into which time has wrought meanings that the sculptor's mind or hand was impotent to grasp. "'Come now,' he continued more lightly, "'an honest word for an honest word, Avis. Do you suppose if I let you go on just as you like you would ever make a definite step towards our wedding-day?' "'No,' said the woman, after a long pause. "'Never.' She threw back her wrappings with a suffocated look, and paced for a few minutes back and forth before the brilliant fire, a silhouette in her falling feather and dark winter dress. Ostrander watched her with compressed lip and guarded eye. He was prepared for a long and serious contest, in which he fully made up his mind not to be worsted. By gradations as fine as the shades in a woman's fancy, too fine for any man but a determined lover to be patient with, he expected her to taunt, torment, allure, baffle, but yield to him now. He had not understood, 
What man ever understood a complex woman, the immortal element of surprise in her nature? He sat dumb with delight under the look and the motion with which she presently turned to him, as beautiful is the pliability of a torrent meeting its first unconquerable resistance. It surrenders as mightily as it defied. "'You are perfectly right,' she said with a grave, sweet dignity, "'and I have been very foolish. If you leave me to myself I shall never make any change in anything. If I am ever to become your wife, let it be all over with as soon as possible.' They were married in three weeks. If ever the Christian character deepened under discipline, Aunt Chloe should have been that character at the end of this memorable time. We are all of us a little incredulous of our neighbor's affliction, but among the radical trials of life, who could fail to rank the rearing of a motherless child to a marriage in which neither the trousseau nor the upholstery commanded the proper respect of the bride? Unless, as someone has told us, deficiency of charity be deficiency of imagination, we must feel sorry for Aunt Chloe. Avis positively refused at the outset to investigate the deeps beyond the lowest deeps that underlay the nature of unbleached cotton. Asked why, if a woman had money enough to buy blankets, she must sit an hour discussing the wadding of a comforter, and failed utterly to see why the marriage certificate would not be valid without the intervention of Miss Snipper and the milk-toast. There was a compromise upon these fatal questions. Aunt Chloe retained the privilege of seeing to it that Avis entered upon the holy estate of matrimony as a lady ought with a dozen of everything, upon sole condition that Avis herself should not be consulted. Instead, therefore, of a heavy-eyed, exhausted woman, whose every nerve was stitched into her clothes, Avis came to her wedding-day brilliant with health, and calm as the sky. This little fact was the more memorable because it left her to her instincts, and no one knew quite how those led her to dispose of these three weeks. She was much in the open air, pacing the shore and the snowy fields or she worked intently in the studio, or she sat alone with unshared, inscrutable moods. Ostrander would have said that he scarcely saw her in all that time. She received him quietly, but with a withdrawal which he dared not disturb. It was evident that she preferred her solitude to himself. He left her to her fancy, not altogether, perhaps, without some comprehension of it. A man does not live a celibate till thirty-one without becoming fully as conscious of the perils as of the pleasures of a wedded future. Ostrander would not have thought it possible, however, that he could put his broad shoulders beneath this sweet yoke with so slight a protest. His feeling that he accepted a sacrifice radically so much deeper than any he could ever make, overswept the superficial shrinking from change, which perhaps all but the youngest lovers feel in more or less degree upon the immediate eve of marriage. He felt impressed by his dim conception of the strong individual struggle in the nature of this woman whom he loved. His whole soul concentred itself, with a unity not habitual to him in all things, upon the effort to adjudge himself worthy of the acquiescence of her life with his. He tried to tell her so the day before their marriage, but she gave him one look which stopped the breath of his soul for joy, and he tried no more just then. It was the simplest of weddings. Mr. and Mrs. John Rose were there, and Barbara, but her brother was out of town on business. Barbara looked at Ostrander, and remembered the tea-rose. Ostrander looked at Barbara, and forgot it. Poor chatty Hogarth was got over with her wheeled chair, and Frederick Maynard came to see what he was known to have pronounced the burial of the most promising artist in New England. And at Avis's request the family servant came in, and her father, who, as is so usual with the collegiate instructors of America, had begun life in the pulpit, married them, 
while Aunt Chloe, with a mind at peace with God and man upon the subject of the wedding-cake, which no New York caterer had been allowed to handle for her niece, protected her silver-gray silk from her honest, sparse tears, and made it clearly understood among the guests that Mrs. Ostrander's health had not permitted her attending her son's marriage, and that the young people would visit her in New Hampshire upon their brief little wedding-tour. They had a relenting February day, in which the prophecy of the near spring was audible, as the whisper of one dear to us across a darkened room. The windows were flung open in the house, and the well-worn path to the studio was without frost, yielding timidly to the touch of the foot that loved it. Avis slipped away somehow, and was missing after the wedding. Her husband went in search of her. He found her, as he expected, in the studio. The disarray of packing put a chill desolation into the room. The pictures were boxed or gone, the easels folded against the wall, only the sphinx was left. There had been no fire in the building that week. Avis, in the middle of the cold little neglected place, stood shivering in her wedding-dress. He held his arms out, smiling, but with an emotion which he found it difficult not to call sad even at that moment. He was so sorry to startle, to grieve or distress her, by the inevitable presence of his feeling. There seemed to him just then something inexorable, like a pagan fate, in the nature of a mighty love. They too, standing there in the yielding winter sunshine, seemed like children swept and lost within it. "'Tell me,' he said, seeking to dissipate the almost oppressive solemnity which the moment had assumed for him, and coming up behind her where she stood before the still incomplete but now strongly indicated and impressive picture, "'What would you do if you had to choose now between us, the Sphinx and me?' "'A man cannot understand, perhaps,' said Avis, after a long silence or he would never ask a woman such a bitter question. "'Oh, we will have no bitter questions to-day,' he murmured, taking a step back to look at her. There seemed to him something strangely select and severe in her unornamented dress. Only an artist could make such a bride. Her silk drapery hung about her like the marble folds upon a statue. "'Can you understand,' continued Avis, ignoring or unconscious of his look, "'that I might, perhaps, choose to stay with the Sphinx to-day, and not mind it much." "'I think I can,' he said, hesitating. "'No, I will not mind. I can't be jealous even of the Sphinx just now.' And then, she added, turning sharply so that she stood with her face averted from him, "'Another day—oh, and what the other day?' Avis did not answer. Impetuous words bounded to her lips but they were checked by an instinct that she herself did not comprehend. Her nature recoiled on itself in the discovery that she had begun to tell him that she could think of no price too costly by which to purchase her way back to him. She stood in her white dress with burning cheeks. She wondered if, when a woman had been for half a lifetime a happy wife, she could let her husband understand how much she loved him. Her love seemed to her an eternal secret. Her soul spoke to his in whispers. It were unwomanly, unwifely, to lavish herself. After a silent moment she glided to him like a goddess, and for the first time of her own unguided, or it might be unguarded, will, his wife lifted her lips to his. They passed out together into the pliant air, and Aunt Chloe came calling about the carriage and the people, and the sky, when they looked up to it through the garden trees, lifted itself and widened like a joy whose nature knows no end. They passed on through the golden weather, in the solemn separateness from all our little common cares and pleasures, which to have known is to have lived, and to have missed is to hope for life beyond.
End of chapter 12